Good morning, y'all. Good morning. Like they said, my name is Lizzie. I am married to Nick. He's over here. We are the RDs at Parsons. So we have been there. Yeah. Yeah. We have been there since the end of, very end of July, early August. We have four kiddos. You've probably seen them in the cast. Nora, Theo, Archie, and Gwen. So that's our little, our little family. I grew up in Lindsburg, like 20 minutes away. Was there, went to church there, was raised there. Went to K-State in 2007. I studied family studies and human services, which essentially is human development, physical, cognitive, social, emotional development from cradle to grave. A lot of people go from there, go into social work, they go into therapy, they go into ministry. So I went into ministry. I jumped into a job as a youth director at a church and was there for a while. And then we just started having babies and I've been staying at home with our kiddos um, for about five years now. Um, I wanna give you a little, like a teeny tiny explanation of my faith walk so you know where I'm coming from. I was raised in the church. I gave my heart to the Lord in kindergarten, right? I was a little kindergartner, roller skates. I fell, scratched my knee, was praying God would heal my knee. And I was like, oh, why don't I just ask Jesus to forgive my sins? So I've been walking with the Lord since then. And it's just kind of like been a sunrise or a sunset, you know, like everything kind of melds together. It's just been like a steady presence in my life. And that doesn't mean everything has always been kicks and giggles, right? Wonderful. That isn't life. But the Lord has always been present. So I'm going to jump in with you guys today. Let me pray one more time and then we'll dive in. Father, thank you for this time. I pray that your will be done. I pray that your spirit will rest on us, rest on your word and speak through me. In your name we pray. Amen. So I get to speak with you guys today and I know that you have been talking about this fan versus follower idea. And that is something that is, you know, based on a book I read years ago, and I was excited. I'm excited to teach. Um, I love to hear the word of God shared corporately. It's something that I enjoy doing. I love listening to podcasts. I love um, being in a classroom, hearing about Bible. And so as I go in, I want you guys to um, be curious, okay? Be curious today. I wanted to share something that is relevant to the every man or every woman, um, whether you are churched or unchurched, that, that doesn't matter. Or maybe you've decided to put your faith in Jesus or you haven't decided to put your faith in Jesus. But before I dive in, I have a little encouragement, maybe even more so a challenge. Um, what I'm about to share has no expiration date. It is not something that is specifically to your place in time. It is something that I hope and pray that you chew on and you think through and process and will come into your life over and over and over. So I want you to take what you will from it. Um, being open to the scriptures, being curious about the scriptures. So I'm going to ask that you are not a stumbling block to the people that actually want to be here that you're not going to be a bother to the people around you. So I'm going to ask right now, put your phones away. Take off your headphones, take out your earbuds. Be here. Be present. Don't be a stumbling block for people that are trying to listen. And I know you guys are the, like, I went through school during COVID people. I was having babies. I wasn't, I wasn't in that world. So 
you are the, the hands-on technology screams in your face all the time. And I think that that can be a real major cop-out because you are no longer children who can't sit 20 minutes without going to your phones. So put it away. Put your homework away. Don't be a stumbling block for people beside you. And really just lean in and, and be open to hearing something this morning, okay? Uh, don't cheat yourself out of hearing something. So um, soapbox over. That's done. We're going to be in a parable in Luke chapter 15 today. I also use one of my favorite books, which is called Prodigal God by Tim Keller. Um, Tim Keller is a phenomenal author if you guys are interested in knowing a little bit more about the Christian faith. So um, before we dive in, here's a little bit of context, right? Know what you're going into. A parable is an earthly story with a heavenly meaning. I heard that in middle school and I loved it. An earthly story with a heavenly meaning. And Jesus spoke a lot in parables so that he could meet his audience where they're at so they could better understand where he was coming from so he could speak in a language that they would understand and they could better know his heart and what he was actually saying everything jesus says is very very intentional so in this story jesus was speaking mainly to two groups of people okay he was speaking to one group which were the tax collectors and the tax collectors would have been viewed as um, kind of like the Jewish rebels. They may, may have been raised in a Jewish culture and left for the Roman culture and became tax collectors. And they're pretty much hated, right? No one likes to pay their taxes. Uh, they, were, they were the tax collectors. They were not a greatly loved group of people. And then the other group of people that he spoke to were the Pharisees. And these would have been like the staunch, religious, rule-following leaders of the Jewish culture. Um, they would have been sticking to their guns, and the things that Jesus brought and said and ushered in made them feel uncomfortable, and they did not like it. So he's talking to these people, and he tells a story of a family, specifically a father and two brothers, elder son, younger son. And one son's heart is in a place of discontent. The younger son, he is wandering, a heart of rebellion, independence. He's experience-oriented. He's emotion driven he is ruled by his desires okay then we have the elder son the son lives a life of grit of effort of rule following he is product oriented he is perfection seeking um, he is ruled by obligation and accolades he wants the pat on the back so knowing this small synopsis okay we're going to dive in if you have your bibles turn to luke chapter 15 if not that's fine just, just sit back, okay, and listen, but uh, please don't fall asleep or I'll be bummed. Okay, the parable of the lost son. Jesus continued, there was a man who had two sons. The younger one said to his father, Father, give me my share of the estate. So he divided his property between them. Not long after that, the younger son got together all he had and set out for a distant country, and there he squandered his wealth in wild living. And after he had spent everything, there was a severe famine for the whole country. And he began to be in need. So he went and hired himself out to a citizen of that country who sent him to the fields to feed the pigs. He longed to fill his stomach with the pods that the pigs were eating, but no one gave him anything. When he came to his senses, he said, man, how many of my father's hired servants have food to spare? And here I am starving to death. I will set out and go back to my father and say to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and against you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. 
make me like one of your hired servants. So he got up and went to his father, okay? But while he was still a long way off, his father saw him and was filled with compassion for him, and he ran to his son, threw his arms around him, and kissed him. And the son said, Father, I have sinned against you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. But the father said to his servant, Quick, bring the best robe and put it on him. Put a ring on his finger and sandals on his feet. Bring the fattened calf and kill it. And let's have a feast and celebrate. For the son of mine was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found. So they began to celebrate. Meanwhile, the elder son was in the field and he came to the house and he heard this music and dancing so he called one of the servants and asked him what is going on your brother has come he replied and your father has killed the fattened calf because he came back safe and sound the older brother became angry and refused to go in so his father went out and pleaded with him but he answered his father look all these years I have been slaving for you and never disobeyed your orders Yet you never even gave me a young goat to celebrate with my friends. But when his son, this son of yours, who had squandered your property with prostitutes, comes home, you kill the fattened calf for him. My son, the father said, you are always with me, and everything I have is yours. But we had to celebrate and be glad, because this brother of yours was dead and is alive again, and he was lost and is found. Here ends the reading of God's word. So there's a lot in there, a lot of family conflict, a lot of family drama. So first we have this this younger son's request of his father right off the bat. I want my inheritance now, not when you die. And this, this question, this request would have come as a huge insult to the father culturally, just a major slap in the face. A son asking for his inheritance was like this huge neon sign blinking, I actually don't want you, I don't want the family, I just want your stuff. He has no interest in a relationship with his father or seemingly his brother. He doesn't want the family business. He doesn't want to work. He doesn't want the feeling of accomplishment. He just wants to reap the benefits of the family's legacy and use it how he sees fit. And incredibly, the father, he doesn't argue. He literally has to go and separate and liquidate his assets. And culturally, when you're given property to sons, the elder son gets the majority of it. So the elder son would have been left two-thirds of the property, and the younger son gets to take a third of the property. So the father gave his younger son what he wanted and let him go. So he left. He just pursued this life of complete abandonment centered around his own sense of self and satisfaction, living in complete rebellion of all he knew to be true or right or real. We can assume from this text that there was extravagant purchases, food, wine, partying, gambling, paying for sex, giving into any and all fleshly desires that he had. It was all me, me, me. He felt entitled to that inheritance and use it his way, and he didn't care what kind of effects there would be. But then the honeypot dried up. Everything was gone, and this famine came over the land. The money, the food, the wine, the women. He was lost and empty and desperate. He was slopping pigs, and he was so hungry, he wanted to eat what they were eating, and they didn't give him anything. He, he just hit 
this place of complete rock bottom, nothing else. And then it occurred to him, man, my father has employees that live better than this. He has hired men that live better than this. So I'm going to go home, offer up my services as a hired man, not even asking to be back in the home. He, he lost that right to be a son. He took it and squandered it and left it. He's like, I'm not even going to be asked to be a son. I just need something. So he went home to beg for a spot of employment. So he's going home. And how did the father respond? This is really incredible. If you remember, the scripture says that when the son was far off, the father saw him and had compassion. And he ran to his son. He pulled up his dress or his skirt and whatever he was wearing. And he literally bares his legs, runs to his son. Um, this would have been culturally inappropriate, culturally indecent. Um, these men don't run. They're the patriarchs of the family. They don't run. And yet this father recklessly abandoned all cultural norms to go out and greet his son, embracing, embracing the selfish son as if he was a prince. And the son even protests. He's like, I'm unworthy. I'm unworthy. I'm not. I've sinned against you and against heaven. I'm not worthy, worthy to be called your son. I'm done, and I know that. The father didn't skip a beat. He didn't want to even hear it because he saw his son rightly, chosen, beloved, and wanted, regardless of his past behavior and choices. The father instantly calls out his servants, bring all the things, bring robe, the shoes, the ring, uh, bring and slaughter the fattened calf, and we will celebrate my son's return. And by the by, the fattened calf wasn't like just like a Sunday roast. The fattened calf was reserved for the biggest celebration of the year or years. It was not a small thing. And this fattened calf, at this point, technically belonged to the elder son. It was part of the rest of the property that was still there. So that was actually even taken from the elder son technical property and was sacrificed and given for this celebration. The father deems the son's return the greatest celebration of the year. The father greeted his lost son without shame, without demanding an explanation or hesitancy. He didn't want to sit in this pros and cons of weighing what it would look like to bring his son back into the fold. He called his son found and home. And he gave his lost son a new identity, an adopted and redeemed place in his sonship, and they celebrated. So meanwhile, the elder son, the son who stayed, the son who held down the fort, worked day in and day out, was coming in from the fields and heard this huge celebration. So he calls his servants and he's like, what's going on? What is all this music? What is all this dancing? And the, son said, the servant said, your brother's back. He's back. We're celebrating. We even, your father even said to sacrifice the fattened calf. We're having a party. Y'all, this son, the elder son, was not happy. Now remember, you had this young son, rebellious, wild, lost. But the elder son was just as lost, just as lost. It just looks different. 
He was strong. He was a rule follower. He was obedient and self-righteous. He was living a me, me, me life, but it was under the guise of producing this worthy family farm, being given approval and rank. He didn't care about a relationship with his father. He wanted the pat on the back. So he was angry and refused to go into this party. So out comes the father again. The father comes out to greet the elder son now, right? And he began to beg his son to join the celebration, and the elder son lost it. This is like years of pent-up stuff that is coming to the surface. And he says, I have been serving you. I have been obedient. I am the one worthy. I have never disobeyed. I have done everything you asked, and you have never even given me a little goat to celebrate with my friends. And you give this son of yours a fattened calf? This son of yours, he can't even say my brother, but son of yours. The father listens to it all. No anger, no comebacks. He's not defensive. He affirms, once again, the elder son position, knowing full well that the elder son was just as rebellious, just as lost. The disobedient, loyal young son was in love with duty and proving his goodness. And yet the father didn't require that of him. He said, son, you have always been with me. All that is mine is yours. So we had to celebrate your younger brother returning because he was dead and began to live again. He was lost and is now found. He affirms his son's place in the family permanently and unchanging, even though the son was pretty much throwing a temper tantrum, like a three-year-old, like Archie. And for those of you that live in Parsons, you know what that looks like. And the father still greets him with patience and identity. I love you. This is who you are to me. I love you. This is who you are to me. I want you. This is who you are to me. Just like he did with the younger son. Speaking the son's identity, not based on culture or obedience or emotions or behavior, but because on who the father says his son is. And the parable ends there. We don't actually know what happens with the elder son. We don't know if he goes in. We don't know if he stays out. We don't know if he goes back to work. So where does that leave us this morning? What can we take from this parable? Um, there are two things that stood out to me that I want to share with you guys. First off, and this is really huge, so please, please pay attention. Jesus does not divide the world into moral good guys and immoral bad guys. That is not how it works. He does not divide the world based on morality. And yet, I think that's easy for our brains to do, right? There's, there's, I mean, look around. We all believe in something. Everybody has a belief in something, whether that is in not a God or in a God. We all believe in something. Everyone is on their own personal journey to be saviors of themselves. We're just going about it in different ways. And we look at others and deem their way of pursuing love, life, salvation as immoral or moral. And assume that God does the same thing. Um, and it's always the same, right? Immoral, bad. Moral, good. When I look back on this story personally, the, the story of the prodigal son, how it was taught to me, all the focus was always on the bad younger son, the one who squandered, squandered the money. Everybody knows that the Christian gospel calls us 
away from the licentiousness of the younger brother, right? Full of rebellion and personal freedom seeking, immorality. But few people realize that the work of the gospel also condemns the moralistic elder brother attitude. And personally for me, this hits home because, because that is me. <laughs> Trying to live a culturally moral life but void of Jesus. I wanted the accolades of being the good Christian without actually engaging with Christ as the Lord of my life. God is not interested in a moral life that's separate from him. Christianity is not behavior modification. That's not what it's about. God wants our whole hearts, no matter what, messy and all. And Jesus does not divide moral versus moral. We all fall short of the glory of God. One person is not more loved, more chosen, or more valuable in the eyes of God. <clears throat> I don't care if you live the most ugly, rotten, outwardly sinful life, or the most, most well-obedient, rule-following life. I was that person, okay? I waited until I was 21 to have my first drink. Um, I listened to my teachers. I waited until I was married to have sex. I've never had a speeding ticket. I used the crosswalk. I don't cuss. I put my shopping cart back. But you know what? Amen. None of that is a factor in my salvation. Not a lick of it got me saved. Not a lick of it. None of that allows me to be a child of God. My morality does not dictate my standing with Jesus. I am saved by grace and grace alone. I am just like the lost sons. In the same way that no bad behavior could make the father love the younger son any less, no good behavior or accomplishment could make the father love him more. His unconditional love and salvation is given, not earned. Do you know the danger of moralism? I'm talking so much about this because it's huge, it, and it's everywhere. There's no truth. It's ever-changing. There's no rock. There's no foundation. Moralism is dictated by current cultural norms, by tradition, by influential trends, the entertainment industry, the music industry, social media. There's no underlying bedrock. It's subjective and flimsy. And that sounds terrifying to me, to build my life on something like that. To base your life on something as reliable as a hammock in a hurricane. That's what building your life on moralism is. So there's a second thing that I don't want us to miss from this text. In both of these reconciliation moments, the father comes out to greet the son. He comes out to them to extend a greeting to enter into his home. He knows the issues. He knows his sons full well. They are not a mystery to him. So here we are. And it's, it's not the repentance and the groveling of the sons asking of forgiveness that causes the father's love here. But rather, it's the reverse. It's the father's selfless, selfless, lavish affection that makes the son's expression of remorse far easier. He shows love and favor and an offer of home. Then the sons can see the full weight of their lives and their decisions and their heart attitudes and see what the father is actually offering. This is grace. 
giving what is not deserved. Because, because what was deserved was shunning. What was deserved was discipline. What is deserved is having to earn your way back into the Father's good graces. But instead, grace is given. And then as the weight of this grace is revealed, we can acknowledge of what's being covered. So I want you guys to imagine a pendulum. You know, a pendulum that swings back and forth, okay? So on one side, you have grace, and it swings just a little bit towards grace, and you acknowledge a little bit of grace, and it swings back with the same momentum to the side of sin. So you kind of see, acknowledge your sin. But then what happens? It gains momentum, and, and you see grace as it's even bigger. You understand more of grace. But then it swings back, and you're like, oh, my gosh, my sin is so big. It's so deep. And then the pendulum swings even bigger, and you're like, that doesn't even matter. Grace is so big. And then it swings back and forth. You have a deeper understanding of your sin, but an even bigger understanding of what grace is. And the sin is so easy to see in the younger son, right? Not so much the elder. That's harder. We're more comfortable condemning and labeling the younger son, aren't we? Drunkenness, sex with different women, not to be his wife, squandering money. But what about the elder? Is he not called to repentance as well? The son of duty and devotion is still, still had sin under this self-righteousness. So many of us are like the elder son. Indulging in the sin of seeking to be our own savior and Lord. Man, we hold that tight. We don't want someone to tell us what to do. We don't want to lose our independence or creating this own sense of who we are, our own sense of identity. We've got to be able to admit that we so often put our ultimate hope and trust in anything and everything other than God, both in our wrongdoing and in our right doing. Christ covers all of it, the blaring bad stuff and the hidden pursuit of our own self-goodness. So here's the question. Why in the world would we want to be our own Savior? Why in the world would we want to be our own Savior? Do we not have a perfect Savior already? So let's just look at his resume. Let's just look at a tiny piece of his resume. He is the creator God, God three in one, parted a raging sea, turned water into wine, heals lepers, covered in oozing sores, restores broken and scarred sexuality, is alpha and omega, beginning and the end, who was and always was, is and always will be. He raises people from the dead, closed the mouths of hungry lions, speaks in dreams, redeemer of all things, hurt and lost, lover of our souls, suffering servant, king of kings, friend. And that is the tip of the iceberg when it comes to the resume of Jesus. So what are you waiting for? What are you waiting for? Are you waiting for, you waiting for Christmas? I heard someone say that. I heard that. Why would you even want to go a second longer without surrendering your life to the Heavenly Father? Who is better? You? Are you seriously telling me that you're a better Savior than Jesus? But we live like that, don't we? Man. Have you actually ever gotten to know him, to know Jesus? Do you know his word? Do you know the birthright that you are given as adopted child into the family of God? Have you experienced the holiness and goodness that he has? Tim Keller says, there's a difference between believing that God is holy and gracious and having this new sense on the heart of the loveliness 
and the beauty of that holiness. It's the difference like between believing that honey is sweet and actually having tasted that honey is sweet. There's a difference. Almost all of you are athletes, I have learned, like 97% of you. I would be in the sweeter zone. Woo, woo, okay. You work out daily, right? So maybe you'll track with this little metaphor here, okay? Imagine you sign up at the gym. You're a member of the gym. Congratulations, you belong to the gym. But you never actually go to the gym, okay? Uh, you're still a member, that doesn't change. But do your muscles actually grow? Do you feel stronger? Do you have a workout partner with similar fitness and strength goals in the gym? Now time goes by, you're still a member of the gym, that doesn't change. Your friends go to the gym, maybe your families go to the gym, but you are no stronger than when you signed up for the gym. You have a trainer waiting for you every single day at the gym. He's got a plan, he's got a purpose, he's got a way to grow you, build a relationship with you, and you're like, Bleh. you think about the gym, you like the idea of the gym, you believe that the gym is good and has good benefits, and you see other people getting stronger and they can run farther and they have more endurance, but that's about it. Then you decide to do some, I don't know, competition, Ironman competition or run a 5K or whatever that might be, and you struggle every single step of the way. And you don't understand, I belong to the gym. This shouldn't be so hard. I belong to the gym. I'm a member. Why is this so hard? Wow, you're totally missing out on all the benefits of the gym, the community, the trainer, the atmosphere, the encouragement. Do you see where I'm going with this? You give your life to God, man, and he saves you, and you are adopted into his family forever. He doesn't go anywhere, but you rarely talk to him. You rarely meet with him through prayer. You don't crack open your Bibles. It sits on your desk for months. It's just covered with dust. You never get to feel the power of his words and the strength he provides and how he'll grow us up in him making us strong and courageous through the gift of the Holy Spirit. When you give your life to Christ and still try to do it on your own, still try to be your own savior, living a life of indulgent choices, dangerous partying, casual sex, gambling, lying, spending all of your money or maybe all of your parents' money, or maybe it looks like seeking perfection, status, an attitude of entitlement, self-promotion, Creating your own happiness, being hungry for money, greed, the American dream. That's what you're chasing. You still fall short because you don't see the Father and what a relationship with him can be. I think some people worry about what they're going to have to give up. I think that's what a lot of people worry, that they're going to have to give up stuff to follow Jesus. But I promise you. You're not giving up anything better than what you would be gaining. You'd be gaining everything. The right to be called children of God, a brand new identity. The old is gone, the new has come. You're permanently knit into God's family. No one is not lost. Some of you here uh, may have never given your life to Jesus, and some of you might not want to. I see that. I'm living in the dorms. I see it. Some of you love God and try to daily walk with him. 
to have this perfect Christian lifestyle, the gold star. I had someone tell me that they can, I teach high school Sunday school, and they told me, I can't come to Sunday school this week. I'm sorry, I have to work. And I said, I'm not giving out gold stars. I'll miss you, but you're not getting like a checkmark gold star for showing up for Sunday school. It's okay. It's okay, no shame. Stop striving and struggling to earn your own way. Striving to be your own savior and create your own happiness. Stop striving to earn your favor with God and prove to him that you can be a well-behaved Christian. Know and trust that he enjoys you. Do you believe that God actually enjoys you? He's happy with how he created you. He created you for a purpose, to love him and enjoy him forever, period. That's it. That doesn't mean that your life is always going to be rainbows and butterflies, like I can attest to that for sure. There's still hurt and loss and disappointment, but God is ever present. Taste and see that the Lord is good. So whether you relate to the younger son or the elder son, both sons were sought by their father and were invited to accept the father's love and enjoy a relationship with him to know him friends everything outside of jesus is second rate i promise it's a cheap knockoff version our own attempts at self-salvation through the means of living a moral life or every striving life will always fall short of the true and real and everlasting salvation of Jesus. Let me pray. Father, as these students go on their way over Christmas break, I pray that you will be at work and they will be curious, that they won't just shut you off, that they won't just push you away, but they'll have the boldness and the, the strength to maybe just ask somebody, hey, I, I kind of want to start walking with Jesus and I don't know where to start. Father, that is work. That is your hand at work in their lives. So I pray for these students as some of them are going home to not great family situations. Because we even see in scripture there's conflict in family. I pray that you'll be with them. Be, be their anchor in the midst of mess or grief or hurt. And I pray that break will be a time of rest and enjoyment. Father, I thank you for this opportunity. I thank you for this school. I thank you for the teachers, administrators, and thank you for the students and the coaches. Thanks for the coaches. In your name we pray, amen.